Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. And this is the program for January 25th, 2009. This is probably kind of an overstatement, but I'm going to say it anyway. Probably most computer owners don't back up their data. At least that's my theory. I wonder how many of these people would consider driving without insurance. Protection is important. Long time ago, computers didn't need antivirus software, but now it would be foolish not to have it. The same holds true for a firewall and a UPS unit. It's not so much about protecting the hardware, but about safeguarding the files you have stored on the machine. So why do so many people just whistle in the dark, hope for the best, and forget about backing up? It really can't be the cost. With programs such as Acronis True Image Home and services such as Carbonite, can't be the complexity either. You probably already know that I like the online backup service by Carbonite. For less than $5 per month, I can back up all the internal drives in my computer. Because it's online, I do need a high-speed Internet connection. And even with that, restoring the data, if I ever need to restore everything, could take several days. So that's why I also use a local backup. And you should consider one, too, even if you're using an online service. Some sort of backup system that's local, maybe using an external USB hard drive. You know, you can buy one of these today for about $100. 250-gigabyte Seagate free agent drives at Newegg, 92 bucks. And you can find OEM one terabyte disk drives, just the basic disk drive, for less than $100, too. If you do that, you'll need to spend another 20 or $30 to find a case to put it in. One of the big questions that you need to ask in terms of backup is how long you can wait. If you're an airline, you probably can't afford any downtime at all. So you have a hot spare, hot backup sites, backups for your backups, and people monitoring everything all the time, day and night. Some companies, however, could survive for several days or maybe even a few weeks without all of their data. Home users can generally survive longer, maybe a few weeks, but you don't want to lose your tax records, your digital photos, all the letters you have stored on your computer. I recently had a serious disk problem, and I had all the critical files and applications back on the computer within about four hours. Now, granted, that four hours of effort occurred over about a two-day period, but that was because I needed some hardware that wasn't available on a Sunday evening. And if I had really needed to continue working on something immediately, I could have simply fired up my notebook computer and plugged in the 500-gigabyte USB drive that sits beside my computer and backs up all the critical data on a more or less real-time basis. For the most robust protection, I use a combination of backup strategies. I have a Drive C with programs and user settings, a Drive D with letters, graphics, websites, and digital images, Well, those two drives are backed up to Carbonite. To restore everything from there would take days. But it's a great off-site backup. It's the safest kind of backup there is 
because it's located in Massachusetts and my computer is in Ohio. The only downside is the amount of time that a full restore would take. Files are backed up almost immediately and without any effort at all by me. A drive C is mirrored with a Cronus True Image Home to a drive that I store at the office. Critical data files from drives D, M, and N are also backed up to that drive that's stored at my office. This would be the fastest way for me to recover from an event that destroyed all the data on all the drives because the external drive is only about a 15-minute drive from my home. That's far enough that I consider it safe, but close enough that I can have it at the computer in less than an hour. The drive comes home just once a week, so the backup isn't always exactly up-to-date. Of course, anything stored to Carbonite is up-to-date, so I can do the mass restoration from the drive that I store locally at the office and then grab the remaining files from Carbonite. That would be very quick. But there's one more step. All the data files, user settings, letters, graphics, websites, digital image, music files, video files, all backed up to an external USB drive that sits right by the computer. This is not a backup. It is a good insurance policy, though. If I happen to edit a file to Oblivion or delete a file by accident, I run a comparison backup every day. It's possible to make this automatic by using a second drive inside the computer set up as a RAID mirror. The problem with this arrangement is that it's not very portable, and if the disk controller goes berserk, the data on both drives can be destroyed. So let me tell you about Acronis True Image Home 2009. Near the end of 2008, the folks at Acronis started shipping that new version of their backup product for home users. A network administrator first told me about Acronis several years ago. At the time, I couldn't get the program to install and run, even with a lot of help from Acronis tech support. A couple of versions later, I managed to get it installed, but using it was still a bit of a challenge. All that has changed. When the new version arrived, I installed it without any problem in just a few minutes, so the first thing I wanted to do was create a full backup of Drive C. Despite the initial suggestion that the process would take about two hours, it actually finished in just a little more than one hour. Once that was complete, Acronis told me that I was partially protected. The next step would be to create a bootable media that I could use to start the computer if the boot drive became inoperable. Good idea. I was given two options. I could burn the image to a CD or create an ISO image on the disk. Had some other bootable device been attached, I could have selected it, too. Well, initially, I thought I would create a bootable CD. That seemed easy enough, but Acronis couldn't seem to find the DVD burner on the computer. So I took the only other step I had. I created an ISO file, then placed it on the Z drive. That's the external USB device, or at least I tried to put it there. Uh, there was a problem. A Cronus crash told me the Rescue Media Builder wasn't installed. I knew I'd installed it, but I ran the installer again, then rebooted the machine again, even though that wasn't required. Still didn't succeed. So I tried building the ISO on drive D. No problem. Dr drive D is an internal drive to the machine, so I'm not quite sure what the difference was. I guess it just didn't like the USB device, or maybe there was just a little trouble writing to that particular device. In any event, I created the ISO file. The next step was easy. All I had to do was use Nero to create a bootable CD from that file. Well, that brought me back to the Acronis system information page, where I saw that I had one more step required. I still needed to activate the Startup Recovery Manager. 
I had to decide where to put that, and finally decided to use 30 gigabytes of drive 2, which is the C drive in my machine, the Windows boot volume. Drive 1, the D drive, holds the Linux boot manager. It already has three partitions. Now, here's where some people might get a little nervous. Carving out a new partition on a disk drive that already contains data is not a task for the squeamish. The system will reboot, and you'll watch several ominous-looking DOS-type screens. This is normal. When you start a Cronus again, you'll see that you are now, ta-da, protected. Well, then I decided to set up an ambitious backup that would back up all critical data files, office files, websites, and developmental files, graphics, digital camera images, and even my entire library of music files. Perhaps, I thought in retrospect, this was just a bit too ambitious. I really didn't want to spend 16 hours on this particular backup, and I was fairly certain that it wouldn't even fit on the drive. So I canceled the job, selected a more modest set of files, office documents, critical data, websites, and developmental files, and a few other classes of data. This time the job completed in about an hour, and I used Acronis to examine the files included in the backup. One nice feature that Acronis provides is the ability to examine backups on a file-by-file basis. You get to see the entire directory tree and each file, so you can check to make sure that everything is there. But wait, even after that, you're not done. Until you've tested your backup, you really don't have a backup. The way to test the backup is not to format your hard drive and then try to get your files back. There are two methods that I would typically use to test a backup, and they're really not very different from each other. Method number one, most backup systems will allow you to restore files to a new location. So after you've completed a backup, just open the program in restore mode and restore a few files in a different location. You don't want to overwrite the existing files. Then compare the restored files to the originals. Are they the same size? Can the program that is supposed to open them, open them? Do they behave the way you expect them to? If they do, congratulations, you've got a backup. Method number two is really just a variant of method number one. You can create some new files that contain no important information or just copy some files from one directory to another, being very careful to copy them, not to move them. Then you perform a backup that includes the copied files. Delete the copied files from your hard drive and try to restore them. Then you go through the same tests. Are they the same size as the originals? Can you open them? Do they behave the way you expect them to? If so, again, congratulations. You've got a backup. So that's a Cronus. But I also use Carbonite. And Carbonite survives because of all these cheap disks. Cheap, that is, in terms of being able to buy a one-terabyte disk drive for less than the price of a new car. But if you buy 11,000 of them, it still adds up to be quite an investment. That's about how many disk drives Carbonite's CEO, David Friend, thinks he has. The number probably changes frequently. Carbonite has three data centers. There are two in the Boston area and one in Beijing. The one in China is exclusively for Chinese users. As you can imagine, the software to control the operation is pretty sophisticated. As David told me, one of the things you'll notice when you look at our data center compared with, say, Google's data center, there are very few computers. What you see almost entirely are disk arrays, 
We have a lot of proprietary software that allows a relatively small number of computers to control a large number of disks. Anything that isn't storage media is overhead and needs to be minimized. Well, if you take a look at the Carbonite Data Center, and you can do that by visiting the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, for today's program, you'll see the Carbonite Data Center. It looks like an astonishing imbalance between disk drives and server blades. There's a little tiny, skinny, small rack of server blades and bay after bay after bay of disk drives. So if you're trying to decide between Carbonite and Acronis, which should you choose? If you want the greatest possible ease of use, Carbonite is the clear and easy choice. If you want total control and you understand that having that control means you have to accept the responsibility for getting the job done, an external hard drive coupled with a Cronus True Image Home is the real winner. For me, the choice was absolutely clear. I wanted to have complete control, so I used True Image. But I also wanted to have a safety net that's there in case I get just a little bit sloppy. So I used Carbonite. Yeah, both of them. The bottom line, a Cronus True Image puts you in control and thereby earns four cats and is, as the kitties say, as good as catnip. Over the years, a Cronus has improved its application and its interface to the point that you can protect data with just a few clicks. You do still need to remember to store the backup disk in a safe location, and you need to buy a disk drive that will be used only for backup, but the entire solution, disk drive and True Image, should cost you less than $150. If you'd like more information on Acronis, you can visit their website, and there's a link there from the TechBiter Worldwide website. For Carbonite, the bottom line is if it did more, it would have to write letters for you. It is simply the easiest and most cost-effective solution available. For less than $50 a year, you can back up as much data as is stored on any disk drive in your computer. Install it and forget about it. And for more information, you can visit the Carbonite website. There is a link there from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And Carbonite also earns four cats. One of the reasons backup is so important is that we do so much with computers these days. Actions that in an earlier time would have created a physical object. Now much of what we create is simply stored on the computer's hard drive. On the penultimate day of 2008... I had a good reason to think about digital photography and the personal computer. I had visited the Columbus Zoo to visit the holiday light show. We had tried before Christmas, but rain and digital SLR cameras don't mix very well, so we went home. On December 30th, the temperature was above 40 degrees, so shorts and a jacket were the appropriate attire. While at the zoo, I took more than 200 pictures, and within an hour of arriving home, I had a slideshow on the website with the best 36 images. Try that with film, or without a computer. In the 1970s and 1980s, I photographed weddings. Following the ceremony, I'd send the film off to a professional lab in Indiana, just a few miles east of Illinois. Within a week or so, I'd get the proofs back. The cost at that time was more than one dollar every time I pressed the shutter release. And then I'd have to number the prints. Later, the lab did that for me. And I'd have to put them in proof albums. That was a lot of manual labor, a lot of time. 
Well, after returning from the zoo, I downloaded the images, each of them 10 megabytes from the evening, loaded them into Adobe Lightroom. It took just a few minutes to call the 200 images down to about 35 that had some real promise. The next step was to color correct the images, crop a few of them, and export them in a web-friendly size. Import the images into J-Album. I'll tell you more about that free application next week. And I created a slideshow. Finally, I published the images to the website. There's a link to there from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Total time, 90 minutes after the event. Total cost, zero. So, if I were a wedding photographer today, I would revel in the capabilities afforded by digital photography. Some photographers I know have been able to maintain prices from 20 years ago and provide a better product for their customers and run a more profitable business all at the same time. With the cost of film and processing eliminated, the photographer doesn't need to be concerned about spending money with every shutter click. Being able to show proofs to a customer sooner usually increases the size of the order, and then the only time prints need to be made is to fulfill the customer's order. That lowers the photographer's overall cost, and it's also kinder to the environment. So really, everybody wins. Well, everybody except those who manufacture film, process film, or print film images to paper. Times change. Work changes. The desktop computer has been instrumental in many of those changes. In the early 1980s, one of the tasks I was responsible for was a four-page newsletter. I wrote a little program to help me estimate the number of column inches the story would take, but that process still required several steps, some of which involved multiple iterations. I sent hard copy output from a program called Word 11 to a local typesetter. The typesetter read my words and manually typed them into an optical typesetting machine. He then sent me the galley proofs, which I looked at and marked the changes that needed to be made, the errors I had missed, and the errors that the typesetter had introduced. These two steps could be repeated several times over a week, sometimes two weeks. When the output was finally correct and the right length, I ran the typesetter's output through a waxer. What's a waxer? A waxer is a device that puts wax on the back of galleys. Then you can cut them and stick them down to artboards, but not permanently. About the same time, I would send photographs off to a shop that would resize them and create half-tone images that I would wax and place on the artboard layouts with the type. Using press type, I created headlines on the artboard. Eventually, I would have four complete artboards, and I'd send those off to the printer. The printer photographed the artboards and created plates from them. The entire process rarely took less than a week, sometimes took two or three weeks. Well, today, I can use an application such as InDesign to create a four-page newsletter with headlines and embedded images in less than an hour. Now, that does assume that the copy's already been written. It would, of course, take longer if I had to write the original copy, but certainly less than a day. The computer does all that for us. Printing is faster, and the writer, editor, and designer cede very little control to the company that will do the printing. It may not be cheaper for the writer, editor, or designer to do the jobs that used to be handled by professional typesetters and printers, but the accelerated schedule and being able to control the process from beginning to end is appealing to a lot of people, including me. 
But the computer also put small typesetting houses out of business. A journeyman typesetter could move from city to city and easily find a business that would hire him. No more. The typesetting houses are gone. So are journeyman typesetters. There will always be a place for high-end typesetting, the kind of operation where a professional pays attention to every single letter. But once you're outside the top 1% of typesetting customers, it's all a commodity operation. If you can do it yourself and, as a result, turn the work around faster and with more control, only a fool would send the job to an outside typesetter. In nerdly news, most but not all high-tech companies seem to be hurting. First, the not hurting, Apple. Sales are up year over year. Apple stock was up more than 5% this week after the company released its sales figures. About 23 million iPods for one and 2.5 million computers. That's an increase of nearly 10% from a year ago. The stock had been down on rumors of Steve Jobs being ill, but it's now up again as analysts have apparently decided that neither Jobs nor Apple is about to meet a swift demise. Apple earned $1.61 billion on revenue of $10.17 billion in the quarter ending December. That's up from earnings of $1.58 billion on revenues of $9.6 billion a year ago. The numbers were better than Apple had predicted, better than most analysts had predicted. Chief Executive Steve Jobs noted that this was a significant accomplishment in these economically challenging times. Jobs is currently on a medical leave of absence, dealing with what the company has called a hormone imbalance. The increase in Macintosh computer sales was exclusively on MacBook portable units. Desktop computer sales were off by 25%. The iPhone was another winner for Apple, which sold more than 4 million units during the quarter. Now, for most other companies, the prospects were, are, or continue to be bleak. Both Intel and Microsoft have recently announced that they'll be laying off employees, about 5,000 from each company, and Intel will be closing several plants. Intel may report its first loss in 22 years. To reduce expenses, the company will close plants in Santa Clara, California, Hillsborough, Oregon, Penang, Malaysia, and two plants in Cavite, the Philippines. Last week, Intel said it earned $234 million on revenue of $8.2 billion in the fourth quarter. But CEO Paul Ottolini reportedly warned employees that the company may lose money in the first quarter of 2009. In a world where 1,000 to 1 is a large contrast ratio and 100 hertz is a fast refresh rate, LG is promising two new plasma HD TVs with astonishing, simply astonishing characteristics. The larger of the two, the X-Canvas 50PQ60D, will have a contrast ratio, they say, of 1 billion to 1 and a 600 hertz refresh rate. Both models have built-in USB ports that allow users to play back many types of files, including Windows Movie Files and DivX videos. The TVs would be approximately equivalent to looking out a large window on a bright day from a dark room, if they really have that contrast ratio. To conserve energy, and perhaps to avoid blinding buyers, the sets will dim the backlight, depending on the ambient light conditions. Sets are to be released in Korea in February, priced around $1,000 for the smaller, $1,500 for the larger. 
Now, you might be wondering if there isn't just a bit of exaggeration going on here. That one billion to one might be just a bit beyond what the screen might actually be able to deliver. And you might wonder if there isn't a, perhaps just a bit of hyperbole involved in that 600 hertz refresh rate. Yes, I would wonder the same things. And there's another concern, a big one. The plasma screens use an enormous amount of power when compared to other technologies. There is no word yet on whether those sets will be licensed for use in the United States or Europe. With luck, that may never happen. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.